0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Each year, high school teachers get a list of names of their new students, the ones they'll teach that coming school year. Now, at first, it's just a list of names. But over the weeks and months, those names become people, each kid with their own story. Sometimes a student shines because of their talent and promise. Sometimes they're the class clown or the schoolyard bully. And sometimes a student stands out because of some terrible shadow in their background. And the teacher has to meet each and every one of those kids where they are, if they're to have any hope of connecting with and educating them. As a profession, teaching is a strange mix of intimacy and bureaucracy, and it asks an enormous amount from the people who do it well. Brendan James Murray has been a high school teacher for more than 10 years. In fact, he teaches at the very high school where he went to school on the coast in Victoria. He's written a book about one year in the classroom called The School. Hi, Brendan. Welcome back to Conversations.
0: Hi, thanks very much for having me on.
1: Brendan, last time you were here, we were talking about taipans. Are you still (laughs) a little snake-obsessed?
0: I'm always going to be a little bit snake-obsessed. It's just something uh, that's a big part of uh, of who Brendan is, I think.
1: Do you have any in your uh, living with you at the moment or is it merely a theoretical interest at this point?
0: Purely theoretical. I think it would be a choice between the snake or my wife and <laughs> my wife is always going to win that one.
1: <laughs> and I'm assuming it's not because venomous snakes are easier to get along with than the teenagers that, that you teach. <laughs> Definitely not. Because teenagers get get such a bad rap. What do you enjoy about teaching that age group?
0: One thing that's very true of of children is that they have this real honesty about them. And it's something people talk about a lot, but it's very true. With with young people, you know exactly where you stand by and large. And when I, I suppose I'm an English teacher, when we're talking about real world issues, they have a way of, of kind of cutting through the adult nonsense and just seeing things as they are. And I think that can be really refreshing. And perhaps it's a sad reality of the human experience that to some degree, we grow out of that and in a way become become less honest and more vague and more careful about what we say. So that's something that's very fulfilling about working with young people, especially as an English teacher. Uh,
1: so the eye rolls and the groans, they're not things that put you off about teenagers,
0: No, the key is to not take it personally, to to see the humour in it and I try to think as frequently as I can about what I was like when I was that age and uh, I think, like all kids, school wasn't necessarily my favourite place to be a lot of the time.
1: So why then, of all the schools in the country, why did you decide to go back to teach at your old high school? (laughs)
0: I think it's uh, a part of the world that I'm very deeply connected to on almost on a kind of spiritual level in a way. It's a really beautiful part of the world. Uh, we've got this beautiful coastline and and I can't imagine myself ever being very far away from it. but there's quite a bit of disadvantage in that area as well, and I grew up myself uh, at times under under quite a bit of hardship. And it's quite fulfilling for me to be working in that community and, and trying to uh, help the young people there and, and make a bit of a difference there.
1: Was there a lot of deja vu, especially when you first started working in the school? Did it feel like you'd gone back in time?
0: Definitely. I think anybody, if they reflect back on their time at school, whether it be primary school or, or secondary school, we spend so much time there it almost becomes part of the architecture of, of your mind these different locations that you remember and what happened in this classroom or, or what happened in this part of the schoolyard and certainly when i started i'd i'd walk past a particular spot and it's almost like you suddenly get tugged into the past and and you remember being there as as a child or you remember a specific thing that that happened there so it is it's kind of a strange sense of having one foot in the present and one foot in your own past.
1: Were there any teachers that you had as a student? Were any of them still there at the school when you joined the staff?
0: There were a few, but by the time I came back, about 10 years had passed, something like that. So uh, a number of them had retired, but but there were a few and in, at first it was a little strange, but that actually became a really nice thing to, to sit down and and get to know them as as people as opposed to as just teachers with a capital T, mm. which I think is how kids often see their teachers.
1: You say it's a, it's a beautiful part of the world, but there is some disadvantage there in the community that the school is in. So what kind of stuff is going on in the families of the students that you teach? What range of, of stuff are those kids dealing with once they're outside of the school grounds?
0: I think one of the things as a, as a teacher is that you never really quite know and that i think is is the real challenge you've got this room full of 24 25 maybe sometimes even 26 kids and that's going to be 25 different experiences and and you don't know what they've just walked out of before they walked into your your classroom but certainly uh, economic disadvantage i remember when when i started as a teacher at the school i was told that approximately 50% of our students receive some form of government financial support the families uh, and that's not unique to just that school that's all the schools in the in the area so it's it's that that part of the world where there is that economic hardship
1: And then for you as the teacher, there's teacher training and then there's the reality of stepping into your own (laughs) classroom as a qualified teacher. What part of teaching was the steepest learning curve for you?
0: Definitely behaviour management, I think, is the steepest learning curve for every new teacher. How do you get a room full of 25 young people to be interested or, or engaged or or ready to take part in whatever it is that you want them to do.
1: What kind of advice had you been given about managing behaviour when you were doing your teacher training?
0: A kind of cliche in teaching is don't smile until Easter, which is the idea that if you are the 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 kind of unyielding wall, the tough teacher for the first few months of the year, you set a standard that makes it easier to control the class for the remainder of the year.
1: And did that work for you?
0: I didn't even attempt it because it's not in my nature. I'm not I'm not kind of the tough guy at all, and I knew it would, was just a facade that I wouldn't be able to maintain, so I didn't I didn't try to teach in that way. So
1: what what works for you if you've got a kid say acting out or being the class clown and disrupting that that classroom what approach do you take?
0: So I think you need to have boundaries that that you enforce. So you need to say to kids, if you do this, this is going to happen and then you need to make sure that that happens every time because the moment it doesn't happen there's this wiggle room that causes problems. But I try really hard and all teachers do this I think. Try try really hard to understand the kid as a human being and be interested in them and and care about them and I think that is the best way to get kids to do the right thing because 99.9% of kids, if they know that you, you do care about them, they're either not going to act up or when they do, they'll at least feel quite guilty, which is a really good bit of <laughs> leverage as a teacher that you can have.
1: What story did your dad tell you about getting the strap from a teacher that he had in the 1960s in the days when corporal punishment was a standard part of classroom teaching?
0: Dad had a teacher who would give the students the strap but do it so, so, so gently that it became a joke amongst the students and they would deliberately do the wrong thing so this guy would give them the the strap essentially for for their own amusement and that was a story that he, he told me a number of times growing up.
1: What message did you take from that or how did you see that teacher in that story?
0: When I was a kid, I used to just think it was a funny story. But as I grew older and certainly when I became a teacher myself, I formed the view that this was probably a teacher who was protesting in a way. I think he'd probably been told by his principal and by the bureaucrats who oversaw education at that time that when students do the wrong thing, you're going to hit them. And if you're not prepared to do that, you won't be in a classroom. So his approach to that was, fine, you're going to make me hit the kids. I'll hit the kids, but I'll barely hit them at all. So I think that was a actually a really courageous thing that that teacher did. I think he was taking a stand in his own way, even if the the students didn't recognise that and didn't realise that it would have been far easier for that teacher to just be whacking them like everybody else. I really, really admire that. And I think that's what modern teachers need to be doing. And what I try to do, which is think about what's right and wrong about education and take stands against what's wrong so that uh, schools can be the best places they can be for, for the young people in our care.
1: Is there a particular year level, Brendan, that's the most challenging or assumed to be the most challenging to teach at high school?
0: Year eight. So year sevens are still a little bit nervous and a little bit scared. Year nines are starting to get a little bit of the teenage apathy sneaking in. So rather than running wild, they're more likely to kind of roll their eyes at you and sit back. With year eights, you've got the immaturity of the year seven, but none of the apathy of the the year nine, which can result in a a fairly lively classroom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: Tell me about the bet that you made with two year nine girls, Tegan and Jada.
0: Yeah, so there was uh, these two girls that I taught some years ago, and they always wore huge amounts of makeup. So much makeup that they they were almost when they had their makeup on versus when they had it off, they were almost unrecognizable as being the same people. And of course, that amount of makeup was against the school rules, so they were always butting heads with the coordinators and and the principals, other people. So I gave them the bet that if they would come to school, come to English one day with no makeup on at all, uh, I'd not make them do any work. They could just chill out and and watch a movie. So that was my attempt to kind of bribe them. The underlying thinking being that what I hoped was that they would have that experience, feel good about themselves and and feel happy and not have people giving them a hard time, because they'd expressed to me that they didn't want to wear that makeup. It was something that they felt like they, they had to do.
1: And did it work? Did they take you up on it?
0: eventually, it took ages. I was reminding them about this offer again and again and again and again. And then one day they just showed up without their makeup, totally unexpectedly. And they said, we want to watch Shrek, which I found kind of adorable for these (laughs) year nine, fashionable, kind of occasionally back chatty girls. And there they were just being kids, sitting in a room, watching a film that we usually reserve for for much younger kids.
1: It seems to sum up something about being a teenager is it on the one hand all this makeup presumably to look older or to to hide yourself and then at the same time being someone who wants to sit down and watch a kids animated film with your bestie it's like this is all these things are happening at once at that age
0: exactly and i think kids are trying so hard to be adults and i think sometimes even adults are trying to push kids to grow up very quickly. I mean, in high schools, we're always talking to the kids about, well, what pathway do you want to take? What what job do you want to do? What do you think you want to study? And I think it's really healthy sometimes to take a breath and, and step back and just let kids be kids because childhood, as we know, is over so quickly.
1: Which class is the most rewarding for you intellectually?
0: Intellectually rewarding for me would be Year 12 Literature. I suppose for the obvious reason that we're dealing with quite complex ideas and complex texts and preparing kids for examinations that are very, very competitive. So that doesn't mean that that's my favourite class to teach, but in terms of intellectually rewarding, it would definitely be that. What
1: things end up getting discussed in that class, you know, with the entry point is, is fiction or books? What sort of subjects come up in those conversations in class?
0: Absolutely anything that you can think of. And this, for me, is the most beautiful thing about teaching English because we're reading all sorts of different novels, plays, poems, you name it, that that explore the human experience. I think you get these opportunities to have conversations with young people about the world that are probably still there in other subjects, but maybe not so readily available in, for instance, if you're teaching mathematics or something like that.
1: So what is it that you want students to take away from that class?
0: That the world is an extremely complex place and that all of our experiences are very narrow as individuals, but that we can really broaden that perspective when we think about all the different types of people that are out there, the different backgrounds, whether they be cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds... Uh, just understanding that humans are infinitely complex and infinitely fascinating. So
1: on one hand, there's this big world of learning that you invite students into, and then, of course, at the same time are exams, which particularly for those senior students can feel like real make or break territory. Tell me about your student, Claire. First of all, what made her an interesting person to have in that literature class?
0: I taught Claire for several years before I had her in, in year 12 literature and she was and is an extremely intelligent, extremely capable person. She had had a range of challenges already in relation to her mental health. One particular incident when I was teaching her in year 10, it was quite a boisterous class and suddenly the class fell into absolute silence and I thought, well, something's happened here and and i remember turning around and seeing claire and she'd cut both her arms with the edge of a plastic ruler and she had this blood running down her arms so this is the kind of the the kind of pain that she was experiencing emotionally over many years and then she ended up in in year 12 literature and the pressure on her whether you say you could say she put the pressure on herself but i would say that the system to a large degree put this pressure on her was so immense that her final year of, of school was an extraordinarily challenging one and probably more challenging than it than it needed to be, I think.
1: What happened to her on the final exam day?
0: She went into the literature exam and well, I was only a few minutes into the exam and I was I was standing outside the exam hall, just kind of something made me just wait a little bit that day for some reason. It wasn't necessarily because of her, but then suddenly the door burst open and the second that I heard it, just this crash of the door exploding open, I knew that it was going to be Claire and I turned around and she she kind of ran out and collapsed at my feet, crying, coughing, just having this awful panic attack and she was shortly followed by the exam supervisor and, and I said, you know, I'll take care of her and i was trying to reassure her saying that it didn't matter that 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 ex- there are things in this world that are far more important than than exams and she was just in this moment of 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 absolute despair i would say so i ended up taking her back to my office with another really wonderful teacher who's the head of the senior school at that time and i had a conversation with claire about what had just happened and and I really opened up to her at that time about some of the challenges that I'd faced when when I was younger and even when I wasn't that young with anxiety and and depression and things like that. And and we had a conversation and eventually Claire decided that she wanted to go back in to the exam and try to finish it. So we were able to to take her back in into a, a different room. And I sort of made the promise to her. I said, look, I'll wait outside this room. So if you need to come back out again, I'll be there and, and you won't have lost anything. And to her eternal credit, she went back in there, she sat down, she completed that exam and and she came out feeling feeling really good and I think not necessarily about anything that she wrote necessarily, although I'm sure she wrote great stuff, more so that she'd had this this moment of courage where she'd been able to overcome something and these are the types of things that you see young people achieve that are never going to be reflected in their their final scores but nonetheless i think are just really moving and extraordinarily humbling things to see I was extremely moved by that and I think about it that often.
1: Were her classmates aware of what was going on? You know, they formed such bonds by Year 12 in sitting there next to Claire in that exam room, did they know what was happening with her?
0: Yeah, so, that well, they'd certainly seen her run out. It was quite a, you couldn't fail to notice that, and it was quite a small class anyway. But I think the most interesting part of this story is another girl named Maya who was just a few tables away from Claire and a good friend of Claire's and really cared about her. And I spoke to Maya afterwards and she said that when Claire ran from that exam hall, she had this moment where she wanted to go after her and wanted to to console her and look after her because it was her friend and she was really worried about her and, and knew that she needed support and help. But this little voice in her head said to her, no, you can't do that. That's not important now. The exam is far more important. And I just think it's a sad indictment on the system that, we would put a young person in a position where they would feel that way, and and they would make a decision like that. I would think that the types of young people we want to be raising would be the person who goes after their friend and, and supports them and and cares about them. And I know Maya for a long time after that felt really guilty about not going after her friend
1: in that senior literature class, Brendan, you get to share your own interests and, and passions. Which writer do you really enjoy teaching to those kids?
0: Peter Carey, <laughs> without question. Everyone who- can just hear has...
1: your voice light up with just enthusiasm <laughs> and fandom here, Brendan.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm laughing because every anyone who's ever been taught by me knows about my my sycophantic love of Peter Carey. In particular, his short stories, they're they're just beautifully written, they're exceptionally weird. They're open to a range of interpretations. And I've never had a student who has read those stories and studied the stories, who has turned around and said, oh, I didn't enjoy that. They that all kids in my experience just love those stories That just
1: sounds a little bit Soviet pedagogy. It's like they know they must love.
0: That's they right. must love
1: Peter if they are to part senior senior no literature. No one
0: <laughs> no one would dare <laughs> confess a dislike of Peter Carey in my classroom.
1: One day you walked into your literature class and the room was unusually full of people. One of your students was filming you on her phone. What did the students hand you?
0: The students gave me a large card that they'd all signed saying, thanks for teaching us, Mr. Murray, which was unusual because it was was nowhere near the end of the year. Usually if kids do that, it's at the end of the year. And it said, we've done something special for you. There's someone who would really like to speak with you. And there was kind of a little flap on the card and uh, I folded the little flap up and it said, Peter Carey. <laughs> and these just... I can't even, there's not even an adjective to describe how lovely these young people were to have done this. Uh, But some kids had contacted Peter Carey through some, God knows how they did it, (laughs) found his manager, his agent or something like that, and (laughs) convinced Peter Carey to give me a telephone call.
1: Where were you when you got this phone call from the most influential person to you in the world? Where were you?
0: I was just at home with a stack of correction, which is pretty standard for for me in the evenings. the The call I'd expected for some reason to come the following night. I think there'd been some confusion, maybe to do with like the time difference or whatever. and And my mobile phone rang, and there was this big long string of numbers that said New York underneath. And uh, I was like, "My God, it's Peter Carey!" And uh, yeah, then I was answered the phone, and and there he was, and and we had a conversation to a large degree about just how. Amazing and how lovely those kids were.
1: What did he he say to you in that conversation, Brendan, that you've shared with students who who were struggling, students like Claire?
0: I specifically asked him, sort of, well, what advice should I be giving these kids? And he was very open and and very humble about the fact that often he lacks confidence in his own writing. he said that, He believes all the bad reviews and he doesn't believe any of the good reviews and he'd been working on a novel that he'd sort of chucked away because he didn't think it was any good. And that, I've told that to so many students since who don't feel confident or or feel like they can't complete a piece of writing because every time they put pen to paper they just think it's horrible and it's not working and it doesn't make sense. Uh, Because if Peter Carey can feel that way, then any of us can... Can give ourselves permission to feel that way.
1: It must have been a, a pretty special letter that those students wrote to convince this Booker Prize winning New York-based writer to give you a call. Can you read us the yeah. letter?
0: Yeah, so I have um, I have it here. Dear Mr Carey, our names are Shay and Emily and we are currently studying Year 12 literature at our secondary college. We have studied your book, Collected Stories. We had a great time reading them and loved your writing. Our teacher, Mr Murray, absolutely loves your writing and looks up to you as an author himself. We even got him to admit his favourite author and you were on top. Mr Murray is everyone's favourite teacher and makes studying literature really interesting and entertaining. We love coming to class and exploring the complexities of texts. Mr Murray puts his heart and soul into teaching us and we really want to give back to him when we graduate this year. So we as a class are inquiring if it's possible to please organise a signed book by Peter Carey or a phone call. We are really open to all ideas and options on how we can make this stream a reality. We are willing to pay as we all believe our teacher deserves this experience as he has truly made Year 12 incredible. Thank you so much, Shay and Emily.
1: (laughs) That's such a gorgeous letter. I love the willing to pay. How much do you think they were going to pay?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, for the rest of my life, that is just going to be such a profound show of kindness that I really won't ever forget. And those those kids, I, I, I think one of the reasons for writing this book is I think, and you alluded to it, that sometimes young people get a bit of a bad rap. But when I hear people kind of running down the younger generation, quote, end quote, I often think to myself, you're not someone who has worked with young people or had much to do with young people because... they're they're amazing and they're kind and they're empathetic and they're engaged and they've just got so much to offer and so much that we can learn from them.
1: Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Brendan, you can't, of course, reach every student despite all of your efforts and and all of your best intentions. Some drop out, some go off the rails. What's that like for you as a teacher when that happens?
0: It's extremely hard, or I find it extremely hard because you do come to really care about them and you know what the future could hold for them if they stay engaged and if they stay in school and you also know what the future can hold for them when they go down that other path and you try to you try everything you can to to get them down the right path but you're right it's it would be naive to think that you're going to reach every single student. And and that's something that every teacher knows. You're just not going to reach every one of them.
1: And does that sense of responsibility continue even after they've graduated or or left the school? Do you still find yourself thinking about kids or or keeping a track of them somehow?
0: Definitely. I, I still think about a lot of my students, the successful ones and the ones who have kind of disappeared and Schools are places that are that are haunted in many ways because you think of all the people who've passed through, all the children who've passed through, and you wonder where they are now, uh, and and you are perpetually reminded of them by little things, and you wonder where they are, and and you're also haunted by even the students who who are at school because the ghosts that kind of hover around them are the ghosts of. Who they could be in the future if things go well versus who they could be in the future if things don't go well. And what we don't talk about enough with teaching is the the huge emotional burden that you take on if you if you care about the children, which most most teachers do. I think that gets lost in all this talk about workload and bureaucracy and so on. The the real the real weight, the real challenge of of the job is that emotional burden that that you carry, I think.
1: You're teaching in this place that you grew up in, where you were a child. What were things like for you at home when you were a kid?
0: I was in a very loving home. Uh, My parents were and are fantastic parents. We didn't have a lot of money. There was uh, one... Instant that I remember, where we got Christmas gifts from the Salvation Army, but my parents were always able to to put us first and and make sure we we had what we needed and look after us. We grew up immediately alongside a freeway, and I remember kids would come over for for sleepovers, and the next morning they'd be completely exhausted <laughs> and say, so "I was just kept awake all night by the traffic," which I didn't even notice. <laughs> it was your so ocean was, waves. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, that was kind of my experience of growing mm. up in that part of the world. I do think about that all the time in regards to the kids that that I teach, and and many of them are far far more disadvantaged than I ever was. In fact, it's almost disingenuous to use the word disadvantage when compared to to some of the kids that I teach, and that that many hundreds upon hundreds of teachers teach every day across uh, across this country. I mean, we have kids who might have a parent who completely forgets their their birthday. I mean, that s- seems such a kind of foreign concept, I think, to a lot of people that a parent could forget their own child's birthday, but this is the sort of thing that we see from, from time to time, just little moments like that that hint at these great depths of of difficulty within a within a household that that a child has to face and and has to grapple with every single day.
1: So home was a a loving and a stable place for you. But what was your feelings about school when you started in grade four? What did you tell your mum ab- about the way you were feeling physically?
0: So it it was I think it was the very first day of grade four. The school had to come and call my mum to pick me up, and I told her that that I felt sick. Which I did. That, that Those were the only words that, that I had for what I was feeling then. And she took me to a doctor and I told him I feel sick. There were a range of tests, test after test after test. It was kind of just this feeling that I had through my whole body of, even now I don't have the right words for it. And certainly I didn't have the vocabulary at that time of just saying, like, I feel I feel sick and I couldn't eat, for example. Um, I found it hard to, to get out of bed. There was one weekend where I lost an extraordinary amount of weight in I think just a few days uh, and the, there were specialists. Nobody could really figure out what was wrong with me.
1: As the the weeks and months went by and you weren't going to school, what did your mum realise?
0: She realised that it was almost certainly childhood anxiety or depression or something of that nature and I say almost certainly because it was never diagnosed by anybody as such and I hold no grudges for that because it was the 1990s it was a different time and the problem was was approached purely from a medical perspective and that it would be very very different if that were to happen now and I it was weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks that I hadn't attended school or I might have attended one day here or there, but essentially I was what we now refer to as a a school refuser, uh, a long-time absent student who uh, is extraordinarily challenging to get into the classroom and to actually engage with learning.
1: And how were you spending your days then?
0: Luckily for me, and I think this is the thing that saved me from an academic perspective, is that I loved reading uh, and, and drawing as well, but mostly reading. So I would just be reading all the time. So I was just staying at home, just devouring books.
1: Do you remember, Brendan, that you were frightened of school or something bad happened at school? Can you understand from you know your age now what might have provoked that, as you say, school refusal in you at that age?
0: Not particularly, which is one of the challenging things about it. It would be so easy to say, oh, I had a scary teacher or there was some student who'd been nasty to me. It was none of those things. And I think when we're looking at kids who are very hard to get to school or, or who do become school refusers, it's extraordinarily complex. And it's not it's often not a matter of just having to fix one problem to get them back. So even, even now, if you were to put me in a time machine and, and make me my own teacher when I was in grade four, I'd still be somewhat unclear on, on what to do to get that younger version of myself to come to school.
1: So what did your mum end up doing?
0: So one day she, and I'm eternally grateful for this, she put me in the car, drove me to school, essentially walked me to the classroom door and I said to her look I can't go in there I feel sick bearing in mind here I was probably 9 or 10 years old so a very little boy and she took a stand she stood her ground and she said no you need to go to school you need to you need to go in there And I remember, we must have gone back and forward for 20 minutes, half an hour of her just standing her ground and making sure that I went in. She wasn't angry. She was just completely immovable. I was going to school. I was going into the classroom and that was what was going to be happening that day. She wasn't yelling at me. She wasn't telling me off. There was no nastiness or judgment And I think I'm so grateful for that because what she did was was an exceptionally difficult thing to do. And I think there's a lot of parents who, for one reason or another, wouldn't have been able to do that or couldn't have done that or wouldn't have known to do that. And I think in her taking that stand, uh, she made a, a huge difference to the trajectory that I was on even as a very, very young student.
1: I wonder if you appreciated your mum at that point or was it, was it a hard thing between you back then?
0: I don't think that I appreciated what she'd done. I didn't have the maturity or the understanding, I think, to to really appreciate it, but I certainly didn't begrudge what she'd done. Uh, I knew that I was supposed to be at school and that I needed to be there, but it was only many years later that I recognised the, the importance of, of what, she'd, what she'd done for me that day.
1: Before high school starts, I remember in primary school, the kind of conversations you'd have with your friends about what this new universe might be like. What do you remember talking about high school with your friends? What what kind of place did you imagine it might be?
0: We thought it was going to be a really horrible place, a really scary place. I remember one of my friends telling us all, and whether he'd made this up or heard it somewhere, I don't know, but I remember him telling us, which is, a complete myth, an urban legend. He said, oh, the older boys uh, drag you behind the sheds and inject you with drugs, so then you're (laughs) addicted and then you'll come back to them and you'll be buying drugs from them. That's kind of their marketing strategy. (laughs) So that was the the type of place we thought we were walking in.
1: Well, thankfully that didn't happen, but some of your other nightmares kind of did come true. How did you first become aware of a student
0: called Jude? When I was in Year 7, all of us, all my friends and I were aware of this boy who was older than us by quite a bit, double our size, and he was a very, very strange boy. He didn't have a lot of friends his own age. He, he was certainly a bully, but I think the normal bully is kind of motivated by the desire to get a laugh or humour, that type of thing. Jude wasn't like that at all. He seemed to take pleasure in doing very nasty, very cruel things to the most vulnerable students in the school and often really quite violent things. My friends and I one day saw, we didn't see it happen, but the immediate aftermath of Jude really quite violently beating a much younger student. So he was a fairly dangerous boy who, for one reason or another, had decided that he was going to be victimising the vulnerable.
1: So he was someone you knew to keep clear of if you could, but what happened one afternoon at the bus stop?
0: I used to catch the bus that was the very last bus and I was by myself, as I remember it, sitting on a concrete wall reading a book, which was pretty standard for me back then. There was nobody else around. It was a grey, dreary sort of wintry day. And I saw Jude in the distance on a BMX and he rode the BMX at me as fast as he could, slammed the brakes on and sort of skidded and sprayed dirt uh, all over me. And then he sort of pedalled away and that didn't really bother me because that wasn't too bad and I thought, well, as far as Jude's behaviour goes... That's uh, actually fairly tame. But several minutes later, he came back and I saw him coming and, and I sort of picked up my bag and was starting to prepare to get away, but he caught up with me and he got right in my face and he was so much bigger than me, just towering over me. And he accused me of calling him a name, which I had no memory of having called him. And he said, say it to my face. And I was thinking to myself, what am I going to say to this guy to get out of this situation? But before I could come up with anything to say, he just gave me this almighty shove in the in the chest. Now, that in itself is perhaps not so unusual, but what I didn't realise and what I think Jude was acutely aware of was that immediately behind me was a quite steep flight of of concrete steps going downwards. Uh, So in essence, what he'd done uh, was um, throw me down this Mm -hmm. very steep set of of concrete steps.
1: So how badly could you have been hurt, Brendan?
0: Oh, I think I could have been hurt extremely badly. I remember literally seeing my own feet kind of fly up into the air as I kind of flipped over almost. I was going headfirst backwards down these concrete stairs and we know now, I didn't know it then, but we know now that falls from a standing height onto concrete can can be serious, let alone when you're falling from those types of heights. Um, and then, all of a sudden, and I to this day, I really don't know how it happened, but suddenly I was on my feet again, and another older boy who'd uh, who'd been coming past just at that moment literally caught me by the collar and just kind of, Put me back down on on my feet.
1: Did you tell anyone what had happened? Your your mum and dad, or a teacher?
0: Never told anyone. No, I told other kids, but never told a teacher. Never told my parents. And that's something that I reflect on a lot as a as a teacher about why I didn't tell anyone and why kids often don't tell adults things that we we really really want them to.
1: And why do you think you didn't?
0: I think there's a number of things. I think there's that culture of not dobbing, that dobbing isn't the thing to do. But I also think it was fear. We we knew, and Jude didn't just single me out. It was lots and lots of kids. We knew that he was a really dangerous person, or that was our belief anyway. So our sense was if we were, let's say, to tell a teacher and even if he were to get expelled, there was that fear that, well, what's to stop him from coming back to the school one day, hanging around the bus stop, whatever? And that probably was a big part of it as well, I think.
1: So how now as a teacher, if you're suspecting that a student is being bullied, how can you effectively deal with that, given the, the reluctance you know personally sometimes for students to come forth?
0: I think the main thing is to talk with kids all the time about all sorts of things. So those channels of communication are open anyway so that they feel they can talk to you. If the channels of communication aren't open anyway, you can't expect them to suddenly feel empowered or comfortable to to talk to you about something really serious. So I think it's about having lots of conversations all the time and about explicitly asking kids, not waiting for them to, to come forward with some information. And if that means kind of nagging kids a bit, I think uh, that's not such a big deal, especially if it's in the context of lots and lots of other conversations you're having with them anyway.
1: And then what can you do about it? What is an effective thing for teachers or a school to do when there is bullying happening? And it might be violent like it was in that case, or it might be subtle, it might be online. What have you found to be the most kind of effective strategy to, to make it stop?
0: I think the best thing we can do, and this isn't just for teachers, I think this is a role for parents, for psychologists, counsellors, the, the most effective thing we can do is develop empathy in the student who is bullying other students because often they don't fully understand the impact that they're having. So I think as teachers we can do that and there's lots of other people who are in in positions to help with that as well.
1: How do you do that? How do you develop a teenager's empathy?
0: I think it's important to tell stories regularly about lots of different types of people, experiences that they've had, force students to, to reflect on what it's like to experience different things, things they may never have experienced. Let's say it's an example of exclusion, so a common form of bullying, excluding a student. That may be perpetuated by a student who has themselves never been excluded from anything before in their lives, so they don't know what it what it feels like to to be excluded. So if we can, as much as possible, share stories and have discussions and have conversations about those feelings, that is always going to help. And and building in kids a good vocabulary around feelings, so they understand the different types of feelings that e- that exist and that that people can experience. But it is, it's hugely complex and, and hugely challenging. And it's not something that one teacher can fix, or that necessarily a school can, quote, fix, end quote. It's a collaboration between the child, the parents, the school, sometimes other individuals, if if needed, depending on the severity of what's happening.
1: After that, slightly rocky year in primary school you ended up doing very well academically at high school and you know that's supposed to stand teenagers in good stead for the next stage did you feel prepared when you left school for what was next
0: not really i think i was probably very good at writing assignments and doing tests and exams but i'd actually enrolled in a science degree which was stupid because i was passionate about writing but I'd sort of been convinced that the arts were not worth pursuing, essentially. So I think it was inevitable that I became quite directionless. I ended up dropping out of that science course and I was kind of adrift for a number of years, really not knowing what I should do.
1: Your mum stepped in again. Brendan, what did she get you to do?
0: She had the good sense to suggest that I enrol in a writing course, surprise, surprise. So that that's what I did. And, and that was a, an, excellent, an excellent decision.
1: Tell me about the teacher that you had in that course.
0: I remember the very night that I started that course, I walked in, it was called Short Story 1A. And this guy walked in, I had no idea who he was. He was this tall guy with silver hair, I would say prematurely grayed hair. He didn't look particularly old. And Someone told me that he was Liam Davison, the, the Australian author, who had collected already a number of accolades for, for his writing and 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 was a absolutely wonderful writer. And for the first time in my life, I had this role model before me who was a teacher, but was was also a writer. He was kind of all these things that I dreamed of of becoming. But up until that moment, writers had seemed very abstract very theoretical they were just these people out there somewhere who had a name on the cover of a book but but here was was Liam as a real normal human being who was also a fantastic writer
1: was he interested in teaching the actual process of engaging with students how did he come at that
0: Absolutely he was an extremely engaging and engaged teacher, you never had the slightest feeling that he or, or his mind were were anywhere else. He was 100% present. He was really interested in what we were doing. He would have these conversations with us that, that made it so clear that he knew us as individuals and he knew our writing as well. And really, really positive in terms of his reinforcement and feedback. It was this sense that we too could achieve great things as writers, but also he had the constructive feedback as well. He he showed us what we needed to do to improve, and I just loved those classes so much, and and I just drank it all up.
1: What did you see when you turned on the news one day in 2014, Brendan?
0: I saw Liam Davison's face on the news which in itself wasn't necessarily a gigantic shock because he was an award-winning author. But then it became apparent that he'd been on MH17, the flight uh, over the Ukraine that was uh, was shot down by a a surface-to-air missile, which even as I say it now, just such a shock and just so surreal that, that somebody I knew and somebody who made such a positive impact on me met that fate.
1: Did you ever get the chance to tell him what his teaching had meant for you?
0: I didn't, and that's still something that I massively regret. I remember the last time I spoke to Liam, which was at the end of that course, and he said to me, "Invite me to your to your first book launch." And that was exactly the type of thing that he would have would have said. It was that belief that he had in us, that we were going to make it, we were going to we were going to succeed. And when he died, I hadn't published a book yet, so that was a missed opportunity. But the bigger missed opportunity, I thought so many times over the years that I wanted to get in touch with Liam and talk to him and and tell him about the impact that he'd had on me. But, I never got around to that. And that's something that I deeply, deeply regret.
1: I Mm. suppose in a way, the way you have become a teacher and the way you approach your students is a way of honouring the kind of teacher he was to you.
0: I hope so. I think about him often, and even more so now having written this book, I think about him a lot. And I hope that some of what he did for me, I bring into, into my classes. That's my humble ambition, I suppose.
1: You have been doing this job of high school teaching for more than a decade. Has your understanding of what a teacher is or should be, has it changed in that time? Def-
0: definitely. When I finished uni, they told us all to develop a, a kind of bite-sized teaching philosophy and mine was that teaching is a career of the heart and the mind in equal measure. And I said that on my first job interview. And only now, I think, has has it dawned on me how wrong I was that it's much more a career of the heart than it is of the mind. We don't teach subjects. We teach children. And if we remember that and if we make caring our number one priority, I don't think we can go too far wrong, even if that means smiling a few weeks before Easter.
1: (laughs) Brendan, they're lucky to have you. Thank you so much for being my guest again on Conversations.
0: That's very kind of you. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au conversations. If you like conversations about big stuff... It doesn't get much bigger than parenting. I'm Maggie Dent, author, parenting educator and the Queen of Common Sense Parenting. You may have heard me on Conversations before, a few times, but did you know I have an ABC podcast? Actually, it's an award-winning podcast. It's called Parental as Anything. We tackle those big parenting problems straight on, the big ones and the small ones, while giving lots of practical tips and common sense solutions along the way. So, if you have tweens, teens, grandchildren, or little ones of your own, let me help you be the parent you really want
0: to be. Well, at least some of the time. Find Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.